1: Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help Cam H treat addiction and build hope. Advertising is based on one thing. Happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing, it's okay. Terry O'Reilly is probably the most famous ad guy in Canada, which is weird because the truth is that Terry O'Reilly hasn't actually been working in advertising for years. The guy sold his ad business in 2018, and, you know, since then, he's had the same job that I have. He's a podcast host, and he's the publisher of a podcast network called Apostrophe. They publish a whole bunch of shows, but most prominently is Terry's show, Under the Influence. That is his hit show about marketing and advertising currently in its 12th season. But he's been at it for a lot longer than that. Before, under the influence, he hosted five seasons of a similar show called The Age of Persuasion. And before that, he had a show called O'Reilly on Advertising. He has been talking about advertising and marketing for a long time. Hundreds of episodes examining every possible angle on this industry. For example, an episode called Touch the Pickle marketing gender equality. Also, the commercial from the Black Lagoon, horror in advertising. It goes on and on. Terry O'Reilly is just endlessly fascinated with his industry, and Canadians seem to be fascinated with it too. I mean, he reaches a million radio listeners a week. He has served 50 million podcast downloads since 2012. There is this huge appetite out there for his insider's take on the ad business, even if he's not really an insider anymore on the ad business. But I don't know, maybe it's not fair to say that Terry O'Reilly left advertising because there's one product that Terry O'Reilly is still advertising the hell out of, and that product is Terry O'Reilly. His radio show on the CBC works as a permanent national ad campaign for his podcast business. Somehow this guy convinced the CBC to pay him to advertise his own podcast. And of course, he sells ads on his podcast, and his podcast is itself a commercial for his books. And of course, he does paid speeches where he sells those books. If any of this sounds like shade, I promise you that is not where I'm coming from here. I mean, I want to know how he did it. Game recognizes game. O'Reilly's not pretending to be doing anything else. He has no pretense about what he does. He is unabashedly involved in private enterprise, and somehow he has convinced the public broadcaster to fuel it. I have always wanted to get the story of how that came to be. I also happen to like his show. I always find it to be well-made and interesting, even when it's ethically agnostic attitude towards consumer culture can sometimes infuriate me. And I'm going to get to ask him about that because Terry O'Reilly joins me in a minute in our studio. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Lillian Moon, Julie Sommerfrund, Emily Niles, Alison Buchanan Terrell, Callie Behrens, Simon Peng, Kyle Barron, and
0: Brent. Hi, I'm Brent McGarry. I work in the fintech industry in Calgary. I support Canada Land because of the in-depth and captivating storytelling I experienced in Thunder Bay and Ratfucker. For the investigative excellence done by Archie Mann on Commons, and for all the other contributors like Matteo Roach, Jonathan Goldsby, and Emily Nicola. thanks for all you do.
1: I want to get into a fight with you about which one of us was the first to start a podcast company in Canada. I think maybe Who's you'll you? Win. Was it me? Yeah. I don't know, because you had a company called Pirate that made your first show?
0: Yes, but Pirate was a commercial entity. In other words, our biggest clients were advertising agencies. So what Pirate did was we created radio campaigns from the ground up, and we directed the voiceover sound and music for television commercials. It was all advertising. Mm -hmm. So when in 2005, when we pitched the show to CBC, I had studios, audio was my skill set, so I just thought, I'm going to do it at our studios. So for the first—probably till about 20—I want to say 2011, maybe, or 2012, I did it at Pirate. And then I built my own studio and and did it from there.
1: You built Apostrophe, and you built Apostrophe as a podcast studio.
0: I started podcasting under the influence in 2011. I wanted to podcast earlier than that. I was ready to go probably three years earlier than that. But I kept waiting for CBC to clear music rights. I figured out the first time we spoke— I misremembered
1: it as when I was setting up Canada Line, but that's not the case. It was after my first series with CBC, I had sold them on the idea for a second series, but I didn't really trust them. And I was wondering, like, do I have to go back to work there to make a CBC radio show? Is there another way to do it? Right. And I thought, well, Terry O'Reilly has a CBC radio show, but doesn't work at the CBC. Right, right. And you were nice enough to speak with me and let me know, that you had this pirate radio company and that you had your own team of people and you independently produced this thing and then you sold it to the CBC and that sounded
0: terribly complicated to me at the time so I went back to work for the CBC. You know, that part of my story is so funny because when myself and Mike Tennett, who's another radio guy, when we pitched my radio show idea to CBC, not thinking CBC would ever buy it because why would the advertising-free CBC take a show on advertising? Yeah. They took it, which was shocking to us, and then we had to figure out how to mount a national radio show. But in the negotiations, we negotiated to own the show and license it to CBC. Not that we were such savvy negotiators, Jesse, because I thought that's the way it's done. It was just naivete, but now I own my show, which is fantastic, but it was not a grand plan. I mean, it's an incredible
1: thing, whether it happened by luck or by strategy, and I remember one of my bosses at CBC talking to me once and saying, they'll never do that again. Not with reference to you, but we were talking about Stuart right? And I said, what? And she said, this guy negotiated ownership of his show and the intellectual property thereof. And he went to them and said, I want to have the rights to do live shows and put out CDs. And they thought, well, No one's ever done that. Like, you can have those rights. They're worthless to us because they weren't exploiting those rights. And what ended up was he built, and, and here the pun is intended, a cottage industry. And he was an industry. Yeah. You make a podcast about marketing. Let's talk about podcasts as marketing because, I mean, at that time it was a radio show. But I can't believe that the CBC was paying him to make a show That they broadcast across the country, and then he goes from town to town doing big live shows, selling out, selling his books
0: there. CDs, everything. He took a busload of people across the country, and then he would swing through the northern states. He had an audience in the states, too. If they had flipped it
1: on him and said, from now on, you've got to pay us to keep the Vinyl Cafe, it probably would have made business sense.
0: Yeah. You might have done it. It's sort of like the Star Wars story, isn't it? When George Lucas—nobody wanted Star Wars. Everybody knows this story. But the interesting part of that story to me is he really wanted the licensing part of the deal. Like, he saw the future, that he could do a lot of toys and things coming out of the show. And the studio just laughed their heads off and said, take it. Yeah. Thinking it was worthless. And you have a similar thing
1: going. Yeah. I would take that. Like, if CBC said, we're not going to pay you a dime— we couldn't do it with Candleland because we cover the CBC, but right. a, we like Commons, let's say. We're going to air it on CBC Radio 1 to every community in the country. That would spike our podcast downloads. They could have it for free. I probably would even pay them something for that. <laughs> so you got a sweet deal. You're like, your model is the Stuart McLean model, and I, I don't know. Maybe there's a couple other people who sell content to CBC that way. but I don't think there's many, though.
0: That's a wonderful deal. It is a wonderful deal. And as I said, just sheer serendipity luck of not knowing any better. Because what do you know about marketing? (laughs) What do I know?
1: Exactly right. (laughs) Getting back to the content and the culture clash of your work, which I think takes an explainer and an insider explainer and a curious approach to advertising and marketing and I don't know. You're on twelfth season of this series, and then there was this the series. All told, this is our eighteenth season since we started. Eighteen seasons of examining commercial culture, right, on the CBC, on the CBC. I once did a documentary about marketing when I worked at the CBC, and I was told like, "There's not enough of the negative effects on culture and on society. If if you're going to talk about marketing, you can't seem this positive about marketing." You know, I appreciate uh, like. We live in a very commercialized, marketing-heavy yeah. society, and I I, you know, I I see value in having one place that considers itself a bit of a temple free from the pernicious mm-hmm. influence of advertising and marketing, yeah. which is an interesting contrast to their podcast today, which are filled with ads, but we can leave that aside for a second. But there was a real moralizing, like, you can't even talk about this. Which um, is why I was very surprised they took
0: our show. Yeah, me too. I thought, going up the elevator that day, our pitch was basically this, Jesse. It was really simple. I, I, we basically said... Most people hate advertising. And it's, it's like architecture, it's everywhere in your life. But actually, when you dig down into it, advertising is a fascinating industry because it's the study of human nature. And nobody studies human nature like the advertising industry. And I said, Mike and I are not pundits and we're not journalists, we're actually working ad men in the trenches. We have access and we have stories. And we wanna take people, we wanna take average Canadians, not marketers, on a backstage cook's tour of what really happens in the boardrooms and the recording studios. That was the whole pitch. Mm -hmm. Going up the elevator that day, Mike and I looked at each other and I thought, they're going to say, very interesting, not for us, but very interesting. Maybe we could do something else down the road. That would have been a great meeting. But instead, Chris Boyce, who was in charge of radio at the time, he leaned back in his chair and said, we'll take it. And then we had to figure out how to do it. That was 18 years ago.
1: It's an interesting way of thinking about creativity and creative people because we're obsessed with artists and writers and people who look at Communication as a way of like personal expression, and here it's you've got people with very similar skill sets in a very purpose oriented. We're trying to solve business problems, solving business problems with images and feelings and emotion. And I don't know something about taking any kind of like moral judgment out of it allows you to well first understand what they're doing. I sometimes get left with like I admire these people, like, and I think a lot of people got into this. I mean, you started before Mad Men, but with Mad Men, people. It became kind of like fun to
0: think about how these people work. How I think we got a big updraft from Mad Men, believe it or not. I think people I just that. got into. You're right. you Got into the whole fun of Madison Avenue, and and now that was era specific. But I'll say this about that show: Matthew Weiner had somebody on that staff that had worked in the business. Yeah, that show, the dynamics of advertising, meaning the client relationships, the dynamics inside an agency, the pressures, the deadlines, the getting fired by. All of that was real. Mm -hmm. So that was a real uptick for people getting interested in the industry, which helped us.
1: Maybe this is a little bit of a digression, but I always wonder this when I'm listening to your show. You're talking about the creative minds who are coming up with the campaigns. Yeah. But you're doing that from Canada. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that a lot of the time that creative work is done in the States. They come to Canada and then they just make a media buy.
0: Uh, yes, there's still a lot of, of, you know, highly functioning Canadian advertising agencies putting out work. The toughest thing for me in my show is finding the stories about Canadian campaigns. The U.S. keeps everything. I can find the first radio ad done in 1923 with three clicks of a mouse. I can't find anything in Canada. There's no archive. Oh. It's really frustrating for me. I mean, because I spent my career in the business, I can call up Add people and say, tell me about that campaign you did, or I can call up retired creative directors and say, remember that campaign you did in 1983? Tell me that story. But it's really frustrating for me because there's no archive in this country. In the States, there's the Duke archives at Duke University that are, are endless and there's all Anyway, there's a ton of archives there. The US has kept everything. They really bought into Marshall McLuhan's line that advertising is the cave art of any era. And here it's not the case. So it's it's an ongoing struggle for me to find Canadian stories, which I'm always looking for.
1: I've never thought about that once. That's so fascinating. And it, it, it's, it's true. When you look back, uh, you find like an old dusty magazine at somebody's you know, grandmother's house or in their cottage or something. Right. It's the ads that tell you so much.
0: Pirate donated uh, a portion of our archives to McMaster University. We donated 50,000 commercials. Which was only a probably a third of our of our archive of what you made of what we made, yeah you made Pirate. fifty thousand commercials of we Pirate. made way more than that that was a third of our archive was wow. fifty thousand but why McMaster was interested in it was because inside that archive was the first cellular phone advertising, there was Olympic advertising, there were uh, federal election advertising, the first aids PSAs like all of that was reflected in that archive because advertising is the great mirror of mm-hmm. any. Era, Like you said, you look through a magazine, you can tell what clothes someone's wearing, you know exactly what decade that is. Wow, but in Canada, we've lost our heritage. Yeah, there's just no hunger, no desire to archive it all yet.
1: I listened to your show recently and you tried to sell me weed. Yeah. No judgment. Yeah, yeah. I sell uh, mattresses, I sell supplements. I I once sold a monthly meat box subscription. (laughs) There you go. How do you think about podcast advertising?
0: Well... We're trying to monetize our podcast the best we can because it keeps our company healthy and it allows me to pay people what they're worth. So it's important to us. And I, you know, I'm in the advertising business, so I'm a big fan of advertising. The interesting question about cannabis and, and even gambling casinos is they're new categories, mm-hmm. right? What we do is we take a look at everything that comes across our table and we decide whether it feels right to us. Cannabis, I don't have a problem with, it's legal. There's stores, there's retailers. I don't have a problem with it. Casino stuff is starting to come in. We'll have to see how that goes. That
1: kind of talks about the comfort question and the like, is this, you know, do I want to put my name on this? Yeah. What do you think about the industry that we're kind of, I, you know, I'll say it, we're pioneering the podcast yep. industry. We were in it a long time ago and it's, it's amazing to watch an industry go from nothing to a multi-billion dollar industry and uh, to kind of try to navigate that. And it feels very new and fresh at the same time there are there
0: are strains within it which feel like it's a return to like 1920s radio or something so true when hosts are asked to read ads it feels like it's the 1940 radio and that's what everybody wants mm-hmm. they really don't want a slick presentation and they're not really looking for conceptual ideas they really it's which is interesting to me because i came out of an entire career of trying to add a conceptual selling idea to uh, to an ad Advertisers don't seem to want that. They're hoping for endorsements, which I don't really do. But what's also interesting about podcasting, I was reading this week, Jesse, I don't know if you saw it, podcasting is reaching 18 to 49, I think it is, age group, almost on par with AM, FM, radio, and linear TV this year. That's huge, right? That almost makes podcasting a mass medium. That's incredible. And
1: radio is something that doesn't get talked about as mass media but in the early years of podcasting it was always like wow we're three percent of radio like
0: radio has been so resilient it's like a tank just this it cannot be killed by conventional weapons that's right it really stays like it's it survived everything right it survived television and movies and the internet and the numbers are still pretty good for radio you know it's still very much mass media and millions and millions of people will we kill it I love the transition from radio to podcasting personally because I could tell stories. I had no time factor. Even our podcast version of our show is usually longer than our CBC version of the show because I I don't have to be 2730. So the storytelling gets better Mm -hmm. with podcasting for me. My first media job was as a co-op student at
1: Q107 and the most sort of beleaguered, member of that staff was the uh, the copywriter for their ads. And it was, it was so old school that you just have some hack kind of, I don't mean to put the guy down, but he just looked like such a sad sack. At, you know, those radio ads, like the quality of the experience of listening to FM radio. And then you get that block of ads. And it was interesting because these days you think about the tight brand controls that companies have. And here was this guy who was just like, you know, the radio ad's like, hey, Jan. Yes, Jim. Let's head down to the Honda dealership. Like, And he just had to pump these things out. And I, I'd get pulled into the studio because they need like four
0: people to right.
1: like laugh or yell at a certain point or say one line. And the guy was just, uh, he was a okay, I started
0: that way, Jesse. So my first job was at FM 108 Radio in Burlington, uh-huh. 1981. It was the only 50s and 60s radio station in Canada at the time because oldies were just becoming oldies, Right. I was the sole copywriter and production guy for the uh, the entire radio station. So we had about 150 ongoing retail clients at any, and it's all local advertising, right? Some days I'd write 25 or 30 commercials a day. I would then need someone to voice them. So I'd stand outside the morning jock's uh, door at nine o'clock when he finished and drag him into the studio to record. And if we needed a second voice, I would do that second voice. And if I needed a third voice, I'd record that voice too. Put my finger on the spindle, tape days, mm-hmm. slow my voice down so it sounded like there were three of us in the room. Like all of that. <laughs> but it, but I had to pump them out so fast, yeah. Jesse, that that's why they don't sound so great because the volume is crippling.
1: I think that's a big factor. But to the kind of complaint, the listener complaint of just how corny they they yeah. can sound, there's a reason for that on FM radio. Like – to try to just grab people's attention in the first second, you know, and I was kind of given a crash course in this stuff. It's interesting to contrast that with the podcast ad format and the kind of fork in the road we're at right now because I'll admit something here. I like reading ads. I kind of feel connected to like George Burns. Like, what's Gracie getting up to next? (laughs) Well, first, a message from Lucky Strike. I love the flavor of my Lucky Strikes. I, I understand that what a podcast is doing is taking a listener into a conversation and there's yeah. an intimacy and you're saying, Hey, sit down with me and this other person and you, you get a, a seat on the couch while we have an interesting conversation and to have some other message come in and be like today, you know, Sunday, Sunday yeah. is, is to it's absolutely, jarring. it's severing that. And we kind of specialize. We're probably the only news podcaster where news personalities will read ad copy. Right. And right. that's a bit of a killer feature of, and we our, our i advertise for our ads. We hear from our advertisers like, wow, your stuff converts two or three times right. as well as when we have our fanciest marketers put together a beautiful, polished, pre-recorded With ad. With actors, yeah.
0: With trained actors,
1: yeah. Because now they're dynamically inserting ads and in podcasts. Yeah. And we do a little bit of that for unsold inventory. And as a listener, like, it's a very different experience.
0: You mean the run of schedule stuff that is pre-produced, yes, that gets pre-produced. dropped in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's that's an interesting notion. You know, it's... In the advertising world, you try and not sound like the station you're on. Mm-hmm. In other words, you purposely try and leap out of the radio sounding so different from the environment you're in. When I talked to radio station owners and programming chiefs over there, they always told me, which is very interesting, we give preference to ads that sound like us. Uh-huh. So we were kind of working at odds. It took me deep into my career before I realized that, that they actually would give preferential positioning meaning first first ad out of the out of the programming in a break right that's the best place to be to ads that sound almost like their their format i spent my whole career trying not to do that you were fighting them i was fighting them mhm i think that tells you
1: something about the difference in the listening experience that radio is ambient and becomes wallpaper and an ad needs to somehow it has to poke you in the ear and get your attention whereas i think a good podcast there are some podcasts that i think kind of play the ambient thing, like like, like a three-hour rambling Joe Rogan thing. Right. Throw it on, forget about it. But if you're producing, and you specialize in highly produced, yep. scripted, narrative radio, yep. it's the kind of radio where you want people to, like, if, if they got home and there's still five minutes left— Stay in the driveway. That's it. Yep. So why break that spell when it's time to deliver? I know, I know.
0: I even wrestle with the transition going from our show to our commercials, what that bridge should be, or should there be a bridge? Like, you know, I think we're both on Acast. Acast has a little mnemonic they use when they go to, and I wonder I wonder if that should even be in there. Like, I'm just, I'm just constantly just thinking about that. Should we burst the bubble, as you say, or should we just transition right into the commercial so you don't take somebody by the collar and say, we'll be back in five minutes, you know?
1: Help As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. We have different priorities because we, as, as a newsroom, want there to be like absolute clarity as to when you're listening to our editorial content and when you're listening to an ad. Right. And there are things that we'll do that the other guys won't do, and they'll consider it like the idea of, again, having a news personality read an ad right. is anathema. And I've had senior CBC colleagues tell me like, I've been at this for 35 years and I've never read a goddamn ad. Like very bad <laughs> Badge probably. of honor, yeah. yeah. Unless we have an objection to an advertiser or unless there's a conflict of interest. Right. I'm into it, you know. Yeah. Like, I'll give the personal endorsement if there
0: is a personal endorsement, right. to be made. Right. I have to be careful of that. The way you have to be careful. You probably don't take on any media advertising, right? You wouldn't take on global. That's right. CT- on right? the right? Canada
1: Land show, we cover them, and so we. we so you we, wouldn't we, take that. Can't on. take yeah. that ad.
0: I have to be careful too with endorsements because I may be doing a story on that brand. Two months from now, right?
1: You've got your lines in the sand.
0: Yeah, because if I say something great about that brand and I've endorsed it two months ago, it just even though it's it's legitimate and there is no (laughs) funny business going on, it may not seem that way to them. Well, you don't want the listener wondering if you're doing a half hour looking into
1: Nestle's great campaign because they also bought a big block of ads on. Right. Yeah. So that's that's the same thing. Like I, I, I'm for sale when it comes to ads, but the listener absolutely can never wonder. Right is this an ad that I'm listening to? Yeah. And they can never wonder, is his coverage influenced by the ad? So that's where we kind of set those. Yeah. It feels quaint in a certain way, talking about these lines, because we live in a culture where well, are those Well, Google lines? blurred that,
0: don't you think? I mean, there was always church and state in, in my business. So, in a, you know, uh, you would never put an ad, or the publisher of a magazine would never put an ad beside a story that had something to do with that advertiser. Like, it, they would- Put you further into the magazine they would yeah. never that was advertising from the 1920s to whenever google showed up and then google makes a multi-billion dollar business of putting ads right beside content like it's kind of interesting to me like if you're searching something from canadian tire right beside it might be stories about canadian tire on google right that's true that's interesting you know and, and, and that's
1: that was a, their model it's also another way of thinking about conflict of interest because Newspapers were protecting conflict of interest from the advertisers' point of view. If we're taking Canadian Tire's money, yeah, it would not be fair to put their ad next to a story that was negative about them. Right. But we have to be able to report on them. So you know, there was always a newsroom concern of like you know, and sometimes they would miss it. And there's some funny instances where you'd have like a, an ad for a raincoat next to I don't know the raincoat factory is just burned down. Right. You know, you know uh, child labor. Yeah. Yeah. Some. So yeah. There we go. You got it. And for the advertiser's sake, you would put that somewhere else. Right. But I never thought about that, that Google, there's no such, and it's all done algorithmically anyhow. It is,
0: and the next story down from Canadian Tire might be a story about how someone hates Canadian Tire. Like, they've really blurred that church and state thing completely, made a business model of it, and probably has one of the biggest businesses in the world as a result.
1: I wonder if it's a question of blurring it to the point where people don't notice or if it's a question of, like, people are smart. They're smarter than they're often given credit for. And it's kind of funny to see the Nike ad next to a article that's exposing child labor in sweatshops. And you might take a screenshot of that and there's an irony there. Right. But it, it doesn't have the same ironic quality if you search for Nike and then there's like sponsored links at the top for Nike and then there's some articles. It's just like, that's just what Google gave you. Right. And I think that people understand that. Yeah. You know, we talk about this in our coverage of this ongoing debate about how, you know, the big tech stole the ads. They stole the ads from the news. And I've never been able to feel terribly injured by having the ads stolen from the news because, like, I kind of know that the news and ads was always a bit of a tortured relationship right. to begin with. It wasn't the greatest way to... like, And advertisers never wanted to be next to real news. They never wanted to be next to war right. and conflict and people getting killed or, like, real social issues or politicians being scandalized. That was never a great place.
0: In network television, CBS, NBC, ABC... The news programs were the highest-rated programs, therefore the most desirable for advertisers, right? But ironically, you don't want to be too near a a war story, yet the most eyeballs are on that war story. It's a good point, and
1: and that's uh, this strange cognitive dissonance of having, you know, the world's going to hell, now go buy something. So this struggle to determine where lines should be and what's fair game, some of those arguments are like settled and it's almost strange to tell my kids like yeah actually when they first started putting ads before movies that was a big deal and people were really upset you know why
0: i have a theory about that there is a great unwritten contract in advertising and that is if you'll sit through this ad jesse i will do something for you in return so You know, the ads in a magazine pay for the editorial. The ads in a newspaper pay for the reporters. The ads in a television show pays for the production of the sitcoms. Even a bus shelter is is a return because you've got ads in the bus shelter, but it's keeping you out of the rain. Movie ads gave you nothing. The price of tickets didn't come down. Yeah. They broke the unwritten contract. That's why people were so angry at that.
1: I was furious. You know, not only are you not giving me something, but you're taking something. And you're not taking just a minute. Those ad blocks became 20 minutes I long. Know. I know. Nothing in return. And that was how I, as a struggling student at the time, justified sneaking into the movies. I was like,
0: all right. <laughs> okay, you can play that game. I'll play this game. We're going to yeah. even
1: the scales. But we yeah. used to have these debates about a million things, you know. And it was egregious the first time you would hear the singer-songwriter who you love Bob Dylan song on an ad or an ad in a video game was a really big deal. Yeah. Or when sponsored content first became a thing. Are you kidding me? This article is a paid article. Right. It was scandalous. And bit by bit, we've eroded that outrage to the point where it would be hard to explain to a kid why we were even upset about that because they accept that we are in a completely commercialized world. Right. What do you mean? A band is trying to make money. Right. I don't want to get all... CBC moralizing on you in the way that I was moralized when I wanted to look at marketing on a documentary. But after 18 years of really removing any kind of like judgment, right or wrong, and just trying to understand advertising and marketing, do you, Terry O'Reilly, look around the world as it has become increasingly brand-focused, corporatized, commercialized, and say,
0: enough with the goddamn ads already? I do. I do feel that way. I feel that way. Even when I watch a hockey game, if I could wiggle my nose, I take all the ads off the boards. I take all the ads off the ice, leave the playing surface clean. There's a lot of instances where I think it's just gone too far and too much. And advertising becomes its own worst enemy. Even the algorithms I have always railed against, which makes me sound rather like an old ad guy. But I never like the ad algorithms because it's kind of like a submarine chasing you. Like you don't see it. Mm -hmm. And you don't know that it's, it's charting all of your online buying activity or if you know, you're, you're looking at car dealership ads and you're, you know, you're looking for a car and then when you go to financing, then all of a sudden you'll get all these offers from Ford because they've been waiting for that moment to send you that algorithm. I think that is terrible for advertising. And you're sort of seeing it now. Apple has privacy things kicking in now and they're, they're not going to allow a lot of tracking. And I think that's, I, that was inevitable because it was terrible. It was a terrible idea. I understand why marketers loved it, why advertisers loved it, because you're getting all this free information and be able to, to track people in the buying process, but it gave advertising a black eye. This
1: episode is brought to you by Article, and summer is on its way. Thank God. Have you thought about your outdoor space? I can't wait to spend time lounging outdoors. You want to make the most of that space. So... What are we talking about? Sharing meals, watching movies, falling asleep on the outdoor sofa. Everything is better al fresco. Article has a curated catalog of outdoor furniture to help you to do all of this. I'm talking about dining sets, decor, sofas, everything you might possibly need. I got a bunch of this stuff at home and it was last weekend, like spring cleaning style. It's just like such a, that's a pleasant chore when you dust off that patio furniture and bring it outside knowing that you're going to have some good times on it and thinking about all the nice weather ahead. Article will get you the... Patio Furniture, you need fast. They have a curated assortment of mid-century, modern, coastal, industrial, Scandinavian, and bohemian designs. They make furniture shopping simple. Their stuff is really nice, well-made, stylish, and affordable. You can try it out, they want you to try it out, so they're offering an incredible deal through us. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 50 bucks off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim this, just visit article.com slash CanadaLand, the discount is automatically applied at checkout, so go have a look at the stuff, article.com slash CanadaLand, for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Are you a philosophical guy? Like, there, there's a whole conversation about how the culture of ultra-commercialization gets into people's identities, and and you know, and it's interesting under the influence uh, which it's interesting that actually, you know, the phrase itself is about being drunk, you know, but being intoxicated. Right. Um, but now, of course, influence has a different connotation because everyone's an influence or we, we live in the age of the influencer.
0: That's why a part of the reason why we changed the name of our show. So the show was Age of Persuasion in the early days. Uh-huh. I mean, our show started before there was an iPhone, before there was YouTube, before there was Twitter. (laughs) All of that didn't exist in 2005. It was still a persuasive industry. I had to persuade you to buy something. It was, let me just shovel all of this onto you as an advertiser. Then when the digital world came in, it really became a lot more subtle. Algorithms, influencers. So really, in 2012, we changed the whole format of our show to reflect that.
1: Yeah, it's a broader category and a more current one because... To persuade someone, yes, it's salesy, but you're having a conversation with them and you're making an argument. Influence is not necessarily a conversation. Influence is, is per- pervasive and we, we surround you with values and images
0: and little signals to
1: slowly influence how you feel about things.
0: But in one way, it is a conversation because in the old days of persuasion, it was a one-way conversation. You really couldn't talk back to an advertiser. right. In this day and age of social media, you can talk back to an advertiser. You can get the president of a company's attention as a 12-year-old girl on Twitter if you had the right message. So there has to be a lot more transparency now. Not that there's total transparency, but you can see someone who has a problem with a marketer puts it out on Twitter, for example. Then we get a front row seat to see how they react to that.
1: I think it's a valid point that the people have a bit more of a voice. And we've seen, you know, funny stories of brands that get it wrong and somebody, they just become a laughingstock and people take turns dunking on them. But, you know, there's always a period where there's a bit of chaos and the power gets unsettled. And then the empire strikes back and they figure out and Wendy's (laughs) gets funny and starts making fun of McDonald's. And they they kind of co-opt, you know, the, the rebel voice. Yeah. And the predominant theme is very different than like as a Gen Xer when we used to say, oh, that band sold out. And now I look at the YouTubers who my kids are watching and it's like everyone wants to sell out. Like that's the dream. It's like, wow, this guy is an influencer. All he does is he gets stuff for free. Yeah. And it's, we don't care that he's getting it for free or why he's getting it for free. And, oh, my God, they're paying him. Yeah. And um, well, is he only saying that because they're paid? No, like the the cool thing is that he's getting paid, right? And in a wider sense, what is like I don't know Instagram culture, but everybody advertising a version of their lifestyle. So like the way in which we've internalized brand and like, everybody is a brand now. Everybody is a brand.
0: That is, to a certain perspective, hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is if you if you're going to buy right into it, because then you have to cultivate and curate your life, Yeah, right? And there's a lot of that going on. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I, you know, we hear interviews and stories all the time about how it's negatively affecting a lot of, especially younger people, that they feel they look at those wonderful lives and think my life is nothing like that and then can suffer depression and things could get worse. So it's, there's, there's a lot of downsides to it. Do you think it's like we need better regulation? I don't know how you would regulate that. Mm-hmm. Like when you ask me that, what do you think when you say that? Is there a way?
1: Well, they're trying. They're trying with really broad strokes to just basically take kids off of social media, you know. And uh,
0: good luck with that.
1: Yeah, opt outs and parents having total access to their kids' account. That's the you know, is it Ohio has a has a rule now, and uh, there's a really strong reason to be worried about that. You know, you talk about let's say a kid who's come out to a community of friends yeah. as queer. And their parents don't know about it yet. And you've legislated that the parents have access to every one of their accounts, or you cut off somebody's access to a community that's actually helping them. And like, there's a very reductive view that right. it's only negative, and right. in knocking every kid off. And then, of course, like you say, good luck—they're going to find some other way. Yeah. So no, I I tend to agree. I, like, and government doesn't tend to be super good at this. I, like, I, I I don't know. It's not a topic I know a tremendous amount about. I know there are laws around disclosing sponsorship. Yeah. And, I, and I know that. That is are... a big
0: law. If you're an influencer, you're supposed to disclose that you're being paid for that. I mean, yeah. that, that, there's big fines in the US. I'm not sure how much it's, it's done in Canada. But if you don't disclose that you're being paid or you've gotten product in lieu of the, of the endorsement, it's, it, it can be a big problem. Some people have been fined big amounts of money.
1: Yeah. So, the, you know, there's a place for, for regulation there. And yeah. then when it comes to kids, I know there's like all kinds of little, you know, specific things. And of course, when you get to dangerous products, there's, you know. Right. I don't know. I guess they can do something. I don't want to just say, oh, yeah, forget it. But but I guess I tend to feel like we have to work this out in the culture. Yeah. I know the ad industry, like every other ind- industry where there's been a moral panic, turns to self-regulation yeah. to get ahead of the regulators. Right. So right. you've got all these ad boards and internal mechanisms. Yep. You know, but uh, the technology has moved so much faster than people's understanding of it, or these regulatory bodies.
0: That is so true. I mean, think about all the changes that we've seen in, the, in just the last few years in the digital world. I go back to the era, Jesse, where my first radio job, I was telling you about all the sound effects were on vinyl records. Mm -hmm. Like I'd have bird chirps, door barks, you know, pull them out, put them down, drop the needle, find the right doorbell ring, run into the studio, transfer to tape. Like all of that was gone. It's all gone now, right? Editing with a razor blade and and a wax pencil. I mean, it's moving so fast now that you almost can't keep up. Like look at the TikTok thing that's going on now with the governments suspecting that TikTok is really... This very sticky, addictive app to gain information, right?
1: Is the accusation? Yeah. Is the accusation? Yeah. That's right, and I mean, it would be fascinating to do a uh, under the influence on this stuff, but I, I don't know that we can. Or I, I, you know, I challenge you to do so. No, when I know. When we're talking about things like, you know, your show is so much about getting into the creative human process yeah. of um, people who are you know, artists in their way, creators, yep. how they're shaping these things and having fun conversations about how to reach people and looking at the market. And that is a process that is rapidly getting automated and uh, subjected to automated A-B testing where, you know, the question of, should we go with this message or should we go with that yeah. message? The machine is giving us the answer. It runs yep. both messages and it tells you which one won. And then their generation of the messages themselves is increasingly going to be automated by artificial intelligence. Right. And we're getting to a place where, how do you tell the story of an algorithm's rapid fire decision making?
0: I know, it's it, it makes it tough on me. And where's the creativity too? Like with all that automation, is there going to be creativity? Is creativity going to become a thing of the past? Is advertising not even going to want creativity anymore? Is it the math men and not the madmen anymore? Like what what's that going to turn into? It's very hazy. The AI itself I don't think can be considered
1: creative because it is just it is just shuffling existing materials. Yeah. But the creation of the AI is the act of creativity. Right, right. And the writing of the algorithm, which we increasingly talk about as if it's just sort of like handed down from the mount. No, somebody actually said this is what this line of code should do. Yep. So the focus shifts. As much as we pat ourselves on the back in this conversation, or, you know, it's my fault, uh, as pioneers of, of a new digital media, yep. I kind of feel like we have something that has a lot more in common with the past than with where things are going. And everything from the host read ad to simply – asking people to sit down with us for 20, 30, 40 minutes and listen to a conversation or, or a story, I love how quaint and anachronistic that is. Like, attention spans are getting divided and subdivided and subdivided. In some mediums, right? So, We're the holdout. I, I can't think of anywhere else. I know. I mean, and that's the one movies thing Movies, maybe. I mean, movies are still two hours long. Movies are the, are the closest... And that's actually the answer I get when talking about podcast advertising. I say, listen, you know, we price our ads accordingly because... Yeah. Where else can you get 60 seconds of a person's time to hear about your
0: product? Totally. 60s were the yachts of advertising and disappeared in the 80s. Advertising went from probably two minutes back in the day, being embedded in Jack Benny's show where he talked probably for four or five minutes, uh, down to 60 seconds, down to 30 seconds, down to 15 seconds, down to 10 seconds, down to six-second YouTube ads. Mm -hmm where I never really bought that. I understand that it's more efficient as a media buying. You can buy a lot more small chunks than big ones, but there's no creativity. There's no brand building in that. And it's not enjoyable. It's like getting a a slap across the face really quickly. There's no real creativity. There's no interesting, you know, I always say connect the dots when you have a brand that every little touch point is an opportunity. All of that goes away in that scenario, which I think is terrible.
1: And it's not just advertising. The the, the notion that... You have a split second to grab somebody's attention, or else it goes somewhere else. They're making movies that way, you know. The Marvel movie format, the pace of these things right. is like they're just slapping you in the face again and again and again. There's no, and they, they can't build tension, or they can't like create any like the quiet moments that make the loud moments work, Because right. it's just it's just pummeling you constantly.
0: Really, and if you want to, you know, carbon date that that's really as a result of MTV because all that fast cut editing when MTV showed up, I mean, that totally influenced my industry. Like once we saw that you can get 30 cuts in 30 seconds, Mm -hmm. which we'd never even thought of before, we started doing that. And then you can see that, that ball rolling down the hill and affecting advertising and movies and television shows and Miami Vice and all of that, right?
1: So I'm a cranky old man
0: because I feel like
1: I've I've found this little lonely island of of podcasting that uh it's still this immersive long-form experience. Well I
0: wouldn't call you a lonely old man. I think it is I think it's a wonderful thing. I think the very fact as you said, that you can spend time with somebody. Mm-hmm. It's a funny thing. When I would do what they're called upfronts with CBC, and for those who don't know what that is, that's when they parade out all the hosts for all the shows in front of advertisers or in front of an audience and They get to talk about all their shows, and then the the public gets to meet you. So it'll be held in the Eaton Center or something like that. I would watch people come up to the television hosts, and they'd be very tentative, and they would sort of back away and be afraid to talk to them. And when they came to talk to us radio hosts, they were always touching me. And I I was really uncomfortable with it at first. Like, they would always shake hands but not let go, or hold my hand and my elbow, or put their arm around. It was a strange thing that I was really... Uncomfortable with, and what I came to realize was it was that thing about audio, Jesse, that people feel connected to the hosts, personally connected to the hosts, because we spend time with them, because it's a voice in their ear. It's not really a communal event; it's really a one-on-one. Television has a lot of awe, but audio has this real sense of connection, and that's why they were always touching. You've heard the uh, term parasocial relationship? No. That's what people have
1: with their favorite. I have it with my favorite podcast hosts. Yeah. I mean, you bring them into your home. You bring them in as you're, as you're washing the dishes or as you're driving in your car by yourself. It's one-on-one, as you say. And it's like a pretty regular thing. Yeah. you know, It's like once a week or something. Yeah. So yeah, people feel like they know, they, 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 they know you. I mean, people have been, you have been in people's homes for 18 years. That's right, that's
0: right. And I came to realize that it was an incredible compliment that when, when people had that kind of, that familiarity with you, that they could cross that, that line and come right into your zone, you know. And I, I actually got to like it after a while. I really, truly did. Touch Terry O'Reilly. <laughs> yeah, touch me. You know. Terry, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. That was terrific. I enjoyed it. That's your Canada
1: Land. Listen, if you value this podcast, I'm going to ask you to please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You will also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You will be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadaland.com. Our audio editor and technical producer is Tristan Capicione. This show's senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Welcome, Bruce. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. Special thanks this week to my colleagues Dory Smith and Jessica Valentin. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.